um, quiet, reserved, ne- never grateful person up here. Well, before we get started with our study of God's Word, we know that we need to be in fellowship. Now, hopefully, those of you who are here for prayer meeting <clears throat> are not out of fellowship yet. Some of you others, well, because of you, we'll have to take a few moments to make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and ready to take in God's Word. So, if necessary, you can use the silent prayer time to make sure you are in fellowship. That's between you and the Lord. It's such a remarkable facet of grace that God in eternity past, billions and billions of years ago, knew every single failure in your life. You don't ever surprise God with how rotten you are, with how uh, sinful you are, the things that you do and you want to keep hidden and you never want anybody to know about. God knew about billions of years ago, and he loved you so intently, John 3.16 says, that he sent his unique son to die on the cross for your sins. And that's overwhelming. That means that we don't ever have to worry. We don't ever have to be embarrassed to come before God because he knows everything, and he's always known everything in our lives. And because of his grace... We can have not only forgiveness, but complete cleansing and move forward in the spiritual life. That's what 1 John 1.9 is all about. We confess our sins. God is faithful. That means he always does the same thing every single time. He never gets tired. Now, those of you who are parents, how many times do you grow weary of always dealing with that same character flaw in your child? God never gets weary. We can commit that same sin, and we all know we commit those same sins. Day after day, week after week, hour upon hour, right? And God continually forgives us, faithful. He does the same thing every single time. He forgives us, and he completely cleanses us, not only from those sins we remember to admit and acknowledge to him, but he cleanses us from every other sin so that we get a blank slate, a fresh start. And he never remembers that sin. He, he forgets it. He removes it. He separates it from us as far as the east is from the west. Now, that's something to be very grateful for in our daily lives. So let's bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll begin our study of God's Word. Father, our gratitude is directed to you because of your grace. We're reminded that gratitude and grace in the English language come from the same root word in Latin. Our gratitude toward you is the consequence and the result and the response to your grace, your unmerited favor, your eternal and infinite love, which motivated you to send your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us that you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, while we were obnoxious to you, while we were abhorrent to you, while we were so deep in our sins and rebellion that there was not one little thing in us that was the least bit attractive to you, you, because of who you are, sent your Son to solve our problems. And at the cross, he solved the greatest problem we can ever face. So we know that through your grace, you have provided a solution to any and every other problem that we face in life. And you have revealed those solutions to us in your word. So, Father, now as we look at your word, the word of truth, that is more powerful than any two-edged sword. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things through the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we would see how they relate to our own lives, that we may conform our lives to the absolute standard of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study this evening in James chapter 1, so open your Bibles with me to 
the epistle of James. The theme of James is endurance in testing, endurance in trials. And the initial mandate that James gives us in James 1-2 is the, really expresses the theme that he is writing about in this epistle, to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Endurance is that ability to hang in there, to stick with it, to continue to apply doctrine moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day, no matter how difficult it seems, even in those really intense trials when our emotions just seem absolutely overwhelmed and we seem at a loss as to just what to do, we continue to be steadfast, grasping the doctrine that's in our soul. Now, as we think about this, the idea of counting it all joy relates to the principle of inner happiness that God has to share with us, that God provides for us. Jesus says, my my joy I give to you. So we can have the very joy, the joy, the tranquility, the inner peace, the happiness that Jesus Christ himself had and we, that is ours as well. God has provided that for us, but it doesn't happen overnight. It's not simple. It's not just saying, okay, you need to be joyful and respond to that. It's based upon something. We saw that in verse 3. It's a <clears throat> causal, an adjectival participle of cause. We count it all joy because we know something. We know principles. We know principles of suffering, adversity, testing. All of these things are part of it. But joy is directly related to gratitude. And as we continue to grow spiritually, what happens is that that gratitude becomes an orientation of our soul. As we learn doctrine, we begin to learn how God works in our lives and how God controls things and what Scripture says. And we learn some things about grace and God's unmerited favor and how we don't have to be wrapped up in trying to always seek God's approval because it's already there. Because at the moment of salvation, we were given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So God, uh, we, that moves us from a position of condemnation to a position of justification, and we always have God's approval. We don't have to earn it through our behavior. And we have applied that. That's called grace orientation, and we've applied that to the whole concept that we studied the last few weeks that came out of our study of verse 12 of what love is. Two categories of love, impersonal love and personal love. And these are all part of the uh, tools that God has given us, the spiritual skills God has provided for us, which I call the ten stress busters. And these erect a wall around the soul because we're constantly running into two forms of tests, adversity and prosperity. We'll come back and look at this soul fortress again in just a minute. We find ourselves down in verse 13, in the middle of a paragraph that began in verse 12 and extends down through verse 18. We're taking our time as we go through this paragraph, and I don't want you to lose the flow of the paragraph. James begins, blessed, that is, happy, is a man who perseveres or endures under testing. For once he has been approved... He will receive the crown of life, and that refers to future reward in heaven at the judgment seat of Christ, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So he returns in verse 12 back to that theme of verses 2 through 4, counting it joy, happiness in the midst of trials and endurance. Then he shifts gears in verse 13. He gives us a warning. It's an imperative. It's a mandate. Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Now I want to read down through verse 19, or verse 18, simply because I want you to get the context. We may not make it much beyond verse 13 tonight, but I want you to constantly remind you of the context. When we start looking at these verses in detail, it's easy sometimes to lose the the uh, trees for, or lose the forest for the trees. So we want to keep that context in mind. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, 
it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing, notice the contrast. He talks about the bad first, how the whole pathology of sin, lust, temptation, sin, death. And then he contrasts that with what comes from God. Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits of His creatures. Verse 13. This is the typical response of many people when they encounter adversity. James phrases it this way. He says, Let no one say when he is tested or tempted, I am being tempted by God. The point that he's making is when you go through adversity, don't blame God for your problems, your failures, and the heartaches that you're going through, which are the result of your own bad decisions and your own failures. That's a typical sort of situation that, that happens many times. Let's exegete the passage and see how this works. starts off with a Negative adjective, medes in the Greek, which means no one. And that is followed by the present active imperative, third person singular of lego, L-E-G-O. Looks like this in the Greek, English transliteration. And this is a third person singular, uh, present active imperative. Now, The reason we talk about the parsing of a verb here and break that down is because that tells us something. It tells us the present imperative tells us that the writer is emphasizing continuous action, that this is supposed to be something that characterizes your life. The active voice means that the subject performs the action, so this always emphasizes volition in the active voice that you, the believer, are the one who performs this action. So this is a, a, a prohibition. So you are to make sure that you don't slip into a position where you begin to blame God for the problems in your life. Let no one say when he is tempted. And here we have the when he is tempted in the English is a translation of the present uh, passive participle of the Greek verb perazo, P-E-I-R-A-Z-O. Now, that's the verb form. The noun form is perasmas. The reason I'm doing this is this is a word that we've run across over and again in this epistle. This is translated trial. It also means Temptation. And there's a difference between those two words. One word, two concepts. The sense of trial or test has to do with the, let's say, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. God there tested Adam and Eve. He set them in the garden. He said, there's one test. Here's the, from any tree in this whole garden, you can eat all you want to. You can just be satisfied. I've provided above and beyond everything you need for for human sustenance. Every benefit, every joy that you can imagine is here. But there's one thing you can't do. There's a tree in the middle of the garden, and it has a fruit on it, and you can't eat it. The day you do, at the moment you do, instantly you will die. And there he's talking about spiritual death with its inevitable consequence of physical death. Spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God, loss of spiritual life. And this was a test. Now, in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the other side of the meaning of parasmas. We see it in the form of temptation. When the serpent, when Satan in the form of a serpent comes to Eve and he says, what about this fruit? And she looks upon it. John tells us in 1 John, it's the uh, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And there's an order there, the lust of the eyes. And Eve looks on that, and she says that it is good to eat. It's attractive. And so we see this dynamic of this pathology of sin 
start to develop as she has this desire for it and the lust of the flesh and then she wanted to eat it and there's a progression there. She looks at it and sees that it is good to eat and so there becomes this inner desire to break the prohibition. That's temptation. So you see there is an objective sense where God will test us. This is the an opportunity. He's not putting any pressure on us. He is testing our obedience, whether or not we will do what he says to do or not. But that's different from temptation, which is that inner attraction to do that which is wrong. So this one word has two different meanings, and you have to carefully look at the context to see what the writer is talking about and which side he's, he's uh, discussing. Now, what we see is that the sin nature in every believer is the internal source of temptation. Temptation comes from three sources. The Christian has three enemies. Satan, number one, which includes all of his demons. He is the avowed enemy of every single believer, and he has as his mission to blind the minds of the unbeliever, 2 Corinthians 4.4. Secondly, there is the world system. This is called in the Greek the cosmos. K-O-S-M-O-S. This is the kind of thinking that Satan wants to foster in everybody in rebellion and rejection of God's word, and we call that human viewpoint. There are a lot of things in human viewpoint that sound very, very good and are very wonderful. In fact, human viewpoint includes a lot of morality, it includes a lot of religion, and it includes a lot of really good things. That is why that when we talk, when we talk about evil in a little while, it's going to include good and it's going to include a lot of morality and religion because... Uh, Human viewpoint and human good are evil, is, uh, includes all of this. It's not simply sin. Some of the most wicked things in the world are, des- are built around moral systems and religious systems and are wrapped in a mantle uh, of what's beneficial for mankind and has nothing to do with what we normally characterize as, as sin. So evil can be incredibly destructive because it's built on the arrogance of the human race to do that which is good. Three sources of temptation, Satan, the world, and these are external to each of us. And then inside we have a sin nature, which is our internal proclivity to sin. It's our natural tendency. If you just go the path of least resistance, you will always be controlled by your sin nature. It's always the easy way out. No matter what happens, when you go through life and you encounter some sort of test, whether it is an adversity A or prosperity P, you're going to encounter some test. Now, the reason that is a test is it gives you the opportunity as a believer to either be positive or negative. Positive volition will utilize Bible doctrine that's stored in the soul under the filling of the Holy Spirit and negative volition will reject doctrine and try to go for some easy solution, some human viewpoint solution, some solution that's the path of least resistance, but is always the product of the sin nature. And the result that we're going to see is that when you take the path of least resistance under the sin nature, no matter how good it is, no matter how pleasurable it is, no matter how wonderful it may seem at the time, the end result is always death. The end result is always failure, self-induced misery, and self-induced cursing. On the other hand, if you are positive to doctrine, the immediate solution may be very difficult. It may be overwhelmingly hard. It may, in fact, bring in in the near future a lot of hardship, a lot of misery, and some negative consequences. Think about men who have taken their stand for the truth of God's Word, and as a result, they've been thrown into prison suffered for years and years under the communist regime. Uh, pastors who were thrown into prison and were tortured day after day after day. Or you think of some of the great leaders of the Protestant Reformation in England, uh, especially under the reign of Mary Tudor, who was called uh, Bloody Mary because of all of the Christian or uh, Protestant martyrs that were burned at the stake in, at Smithfield because of their 
beliefs in the just principle, the doctrinal principle of justification by faith alone. The easy way was just to recant. In fact, one man by the name of Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, finally recanted his Protestant beliefs. But that, that was not good enough. And so Mary had promised that if he recanted, she would give him his life and he wouldn't be burned at the stake. So he recanted of his faith finally under, after days and days of torture. And they said, no, nope, you waited too long. We're still going to burn you at the stake. So he recanted of his recantation. <laughs> Went back to his Protestant beliefs. And he was so overwhelmed by guilt that when they tied him to the stake at Smithfield and they built the pyre around him and as the fire, the flames began to lick at him and, and raise up high, he took his hand, the hand that he had used that held the pen that signed his recantation and he held that in the flames because that was the hand that had betrayed his Lord. And he sang hymns to God until he passed out. That is joy in the midst of trials. That's dying grace. And it, you, you look at that and how difficult that is, and it's the path of hardship. It's the, he, he tried to take the path of least resistance, and it didn't get him anywhere. Take the path of hardship, which is the application of Bible doctrine operating on divine viewpoint, and ultimately the end is always reward, blessing, spiritual growth, and it is never, never easy. It's always a struggle to fight with the sin nature. That's what James is addressing here. On the, at the beginning, verse 13, he's dealing with the negative side. Never give in and say when you are tempted. And here the emphasis is on that internal temptation from the sin nature and yielding to it. And then you go through the consequences. It's all wrapped up in this idea. No one say when he is tempted. Now you've been tempted, now you've failed, now you've committed some sin, and now you're suffering the consequences for it, saying it's all God's fault. If that hadn't happened, it's God's fault. Never say, I am being tempted by God. Now we have to take some time here to review the doctrine of suffering, because it's been some time since we've looked at it. What is the purpose and role of testing and suffering in the life of the believer? So an introduction to why we go through suffering in the Christian life. First of all, there are two basic categories of suffering. Two categories. There is deserved suffering, and there is undeserved suffering. Two categories, deserved and undeserved. Under deserved suffering, we suffer first of all because we are, and primarily because we're sinners and we make bad decisions. This is deserved suffering. This entails, first of all, the law of volitional responsibility. So we'll put that up here on the overhead as LVR. The law of volitional responsibility. Every single human being is responsible for their actions. I don't care what has happened to you over the years and how crazy you may seem right now or how insane you may be or how bad your scores may be on any of any battery of psychological instruments the bottom line is that from the moment you were born throughout your life you made hundreds of thousands perhaps millions of critical decisions and the cumulative effect of enough decisions that are done under the power of the sin nature as we've seen in our study of of uh, verse 7 and 8 is that it brings instability. It fragments the soul. What the scripture calls dysukos in the Greek, it's translated double-minded, but it literally means two-souled. It fragments the soul, fragments the personality, and leads to all sorts of problems in, in life. So if you want to be unstable, then you go through and make these cumulative decisions, and the result is that you're responsible for every single one of them, and you may end up, at a very early age, destroying a lot of your conscience, hardening your conscience. You may end up being a sociopath. You may end up being a mass murderer. You may end up uh, causing all sorts of problems, but you can't justify it by saying they're just insane. The problem is that all of those decisions and in their insane... Nobody's born insane. They may be born 
uh, mentally handicapped. But no one is born insane. Insanity is a product of years and years of bad decisions. They're responsible for every one of them, and that's why capital punishment needs to be invoked quickly and consistently for capital crimes and certain felonies. So you have deserved suffering, which brings about the law of volitional responsibility, which is spelled out in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. You're going to uh, reap the consequences of your actions. If you're making bad decisions from a position of weakness, and a position of weakness is defined as being under the control of the sin nature. So if you're letting the sin nature dictate your decision-making and you're trying to solve your problems and make it through life on the power of the sin nature instead of the power of the Holy Spirit, then the result is going to be many negative consequences because sooner or later these will accumulate and have a tremendous impact on your life. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. And then under the second category of deserved suffering, we have the law of divine discipline, LDD. The first is not divine discipline per se, although that may be all that God allows to happen as a consequence for your sin. He may not add suffering on top of that. He may decide that that um, <clears throat> the natural consequences to your uh, poor decisions is all that you need for in terms of discipline. But then he may add to it. He may add another burden on top of that in order to get your attention. Uh, The natural consequences may not be enough. He may have to start beating you between the ears with a two-by-four just to get your attention. This is in Hebrews 12.5. And have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, And that is every single child of God. At the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, you become a child of the royal family. You are adopted into God's family. And from that point on, God's goal in your life is to bring you into conformity with the person and character or the character of Jesus Christ. We are to be conformed to his image. Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's God's plan for your life is to make you like Jesus Christ. He's never going to let up. He's not going to stop. He is constantly going to be working in your life through divine discipline, through the law of volitional responsibility, through uh, blessing, through all sorts of different ways. God is working through teaching doctrine, etc., to try to bring you to this point. But the thing is, in negative volition, you can continue to harden your heart and reject the Word and continue to try to solve your problems in life your way on the basis of of your own uh, human viewpoint, your own efforts, and the energy of your sin nature. And eventually God will give up on you, and you will go through the most miserable uh, discipline that there is, and that is the sin unto death. But if you continue to stay with it at any point, because you're alive, you can always use 1 John 1, 9 and reverse the trend. You can always come back. There's always grace. As long as you're alive, God's grace is still active and there's always a solution. That's why the first uh, stress buster, the first problem-solving device is 1 John 1, 9. So that we can be restored to fellowship with God and have the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can go forward in the spiritual life. So we have two categories of suffering. The first is deserved suffering, which is the result of our own bad, sinful choices and decisions And that entails the law of volitional responsibility and the law of divine discipline. Then we have undeserved suffering. Undeserved suffering. Now, this is hard for a lot of people to deal with because they think this is so unfair and unjust that we have undeserved suffering. Undeserved suffering is nothing more than suffering by association. We suffer consequences all the time from other people's bad decisions. We suffer consequences from the bad decisions of of, uh, government officials, from family members, from people we work for. Bad decisions made by a president of a company can filter down and cause the loss five or ten years later of hundreds of employees and create trauma in the lives of hundreds of people. 
just two or three bad decisions. So there's all sorts of undeserved suffering in life. First of all, the first kind of undeserved suffering is association with the cosmic system. Now, the cosmic system, spell it in English, the cosmic system is Satan's system for trying to rule the world and bring peace and order and stability in the world totally apart from God. Now, that all began, Adam gave him control of the, wor- of the world system when he sinned in the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, Satan has been in control of, of uh, planet Earth. He is the prince and the power of the air. And you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are the enemy of Satan and his system, and you are the particular target of all of Satan's schemes. Now, that does not mean that Satan personally is after every single believer. Satan is not omnipresent. You always find some Christians who run around and every time something happens, they're saying, Satan is after me. Well, Satan personally is not after them. But if you're using Satan as just the representative of the entire system and organization that is hostile to God and hostile to believers, then in a sense that is true. Because Satan heads a vast organization of, uh, <coughs> of demons, and those demons are out there involved in all sorts of, of uh, schemes to try to distract Christians from uh, obedience to God, from Bible class, from going forward, either personally and directly, which is, you know, a lot of people give demons credit for a lot more than they're actively involved in because, frankly, our sin nature is the largest problem. Satan doesn't need a whole lot of help once we're negative to God. Our sin nature is just as capable of producing all of the evil that Satan produces. We just don't have all the physical power to go to the extremes that he does. So, we have the cosmic system, and this is all of the ideology that Satan promotes to give us a rationale or justification for our sin nature and our independence to God. That's really what the cosmic system is. And we live in a system dominated by evil. And there's a wonderful quote that uh, Lewis Berry Chafer has. I think it's in volume two or volume three of his Systematic Theology, which I don't have with me, but it's something to the effect that one of the greatest testimonies to Satan's failure is all of the violence and crime and, and famines and suffering that go on on planet Earth. Because Satan's goal is to produce a world system that provides happiness and joy and peace and stability for everybody. But he's dealing with five billion people on the planet who each want to be their own God. And that's a great testimony to his inadequacy and his failure because he'll never be able to achieve his goals because too many other people are in competition with him. That's the world system. We live in a cosmic system, and therefore every system in that system, and what I mean by systems are every job organization, every government, every bureaucracy, every business, are all tainted by, by cosmic evil. And that means that we're constantly going to be butting our heads against organizations and systems in life, or we're just not going to get anywhere. We're going to maximize our frustration in, in dealing with them. And because we live in the cosmic system, there's always going to be failures, there's always going to be disappointments, and there's always going to be undeserved suffering on our part. There are going to be times when the IRS agent knocks on our door and calls us in for an audit, accuses us of all kinds of things, and we end up losing everything we have, and we didn't do anything wrong, but it's just because we're dealing with the cosmic system. And that's one extreme example, and there are many, many others that because of this, and the only way to handle that is through the solutions that we have in God's Word. So one reason we have undeserved suffering is association with the cosmic system. The second reason that we have undeserved suffering is association with other sinners. When you wake up in the morning and you look across your bed at that person you're madly in love with, you're looking at a sinner. And that person is going to make certain decisions at times that really hurt you. They're going to make decisions at times that you're going to suffer consequences for. And that's why we have, as part of our problem-solving devices, impersonal and unconditional love. And never gives us, an ex- no matter how big their failures are, it never gives us an excuse to respond or react with mental attitude sins as 
bitterness and anger, resentment, vindictiveness, revenge, anything like that. It has no place in the Christian life, and it just ends up intensifying the whole problem situation and making everything worse. But we're always in association with sinners. We have business partners who are sinners. We work for people who are sinners. We work and supervise people who are sinners. And they're going to make bad decisions, sometimes horrendous decisions. And those decisions that they make are sometimes going to bring an enormous amount of suffering and adversity into our own lives. So we have undeserved suffering, which comes from being in association and living in a cosmic system. And secondly, in association with sinners. Now, sometimes that involves just general, generally what I would call indirect association uh, with other employees in the company or being involved in a company or corporation where executive management is making bad decisions. Because of their bad decisions, you suffer. Sometimes it happens because you're under a government. You think of uh, evangelical Christians who were living in uh, Germany during World War II and the suffering that they had to go through because of the bad decisions caused by the leadership in that country. So anytime you're involved in a, in a system run by fallen creatures, then you're in, in danger of suffering by association with those sinners, and even though it's just an indirect association. And then there's the direct association of close friends, family, business partners, people like that. When they make bad decisions, we suffer. So there's deserved suffering and there is undeserved suffering. And every time we encounter any form of adversity or suffering or any form of prosperity, that gives us once again that option. Positive volition, negative volition. Are we going to use divine viewpoint and solve the problems through the filling of the Holy Spirit, through application of biblical principles, or are we going to opt for human viewpoint solutions and the sin nature? And what we see here in this particular passage is how to solve these problems, uh, uh, what happens when we solve the problems through the sin nature. But we have to remember that no matter what we've done, no matter how great the failure, no matter how devastating the sin and how much it has shocked us and everyone around us, God will always forgive us because of what Christ did on the cross. Now, that doesn't mean that we still don't go through divine discipline. Remember, God sets the discipline. It's horrible. Sometimes He reduces it, sometimes He takes it away, but sometimes He leaves it at the same intensity. Sometimes it's not divine discipline, it's just the fact that we've uh, made bad decisions and now we're suffering the natural consequences. If you commit murder, you can confess your sins ten minutes later. God will forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. You have rapport with God. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can go forward in your spiritual life until they put you in the gas chamber or electric chair or give you a fatal injection. But you, can, you will still go through all the consequences. The person you murdered is still dead and you're still guilty of criminal activity and you need to be sentenced to uh, the death penalty because of it. It doesn't matter how great a Christian you are or how deeply you repent, you still are going to suffer those consequences. That's, but now, all of that suffering can be converted to suffering for blessing, and you handle those problems through using the stress busters. That's why it becomes suffering for blessing. Let's take a biblical example of, of David. Remember, David committed the great sins of adultery with Bathsheba, and then he tried to cover it up, and he murdered her. When she got pregnant, he tried to cover it all up by, by uh, getting her husband Uriah to come back from the front lines and uh, spending a couple of nights with his wife, but he wouldn't do it. He had too much integrity. So David had him put in a very vulnerable position on the front lines of battle. In fact, he create, had his generals create a situation that would put Uriah's life in jeopardy so that Uriah would, would more than likely be killed, which is what happened. So David's guilty of adultery, murder, lying, cover-up, a host of sins. It's not just the adultery. Everybody wants to focus on that. But it's not just the adultery. It's a whole realm of sins that goes on for quite some time. And then David finally, as a result of Nathan's confrontation, David confesses his sin. You see, we have the Psalms. Psalm 51, Psalm 38, uh, Psalm 32, I believe, express his, his confession. 
But David still had to suffer. There was a fourfold discipline that went on for the rest of David's life. But because David was back in fellowship and he's applying doctrine to all this discipline, it, it, David could, could handle that suffering. It became suffering for blessing instead of suffering for blessing. And by applying doctrine to that suffering, he could advance in his spiritual life. That's the dynamic. We, just because we have grace does not mean we get away with it scot-free. Grace means that we can be restored to fellowship and have all of God's resources on our side for solving the consequences from our bad decisions. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that there is no temptation. Here we have the objective use of parasmas. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful. That means God always does the same thing every single time. God is faithful, and He is sovereign. That's what's behind this. He is sovereign. That means He controls the circumstances. When we look at the character of God, God is sovereign. That means He is the absolute ruler of all creation, and nothing takes place in His creation without His approval. God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able No matter how hard the testing got for Job, when God gave Satan permission to test Job, God knew that it would not go beyond what Job was able. But what makes him able? What makes him able is the doctrine. Doctrine, first of all, that is objectively available in the Word of God. You have the solution to every single problem, every difficulty, right there in the Bible. Week after week, you come to Bible class and you hear doctrinal principles. If you are learning them and assimilating them into your soul, then you have the resources to handle anything. It's there in your Bible. You are able to handle anything. God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. First of all, because you have Bible doctrine objectively available, and then you have it subjectively available. It is in your soul. That's what I mean here by objective. I mean by subjective. It's inside your soul. And you can utilize that to solve whatever problems, whatever test may come along. And that's what is meant in the next clause. But with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure it. Notice, the way to escape enables you to endure the suffering. The way to escape does not remove the suffering. So often when people read this, that's exactly what they hear is that, well, I've got a way to escape, so I'll get away from it. The way to escape allows you to stay under the pressure in the midst of the adversity with the heat turned all the way up and enduring it with joy, with inner happiness. So the role of these tests is to examine the doctrine that is in our soul and to give us the opportunity to apply it so that it strengthens our spiritual life and gives us the opportunity to grow and mature as believers. We can't avoid it. Tests are inevitable. Job 5.7 says, For man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job 7.3, Job said, So I am allotted months of vanity, months of emptiness, literally, and nights of trouble are appointed for me. Psalm 9.9, The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. We cannot avoid adversity. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. We have to understand how God has provided a solution. It's hinted at in Psalm 9.9. The Lord will be a stronghold for the oppressed. What is that stronghold? How is the Lord a stronghold for us in times of trouble? Because through the utilization, through the learning, assimilation, and utilization of Bible doctrine, we can erect this fortress around our soul. This fortress I have illustrated here is made up of the ten stress busters. These are skills or problem-solving techniques for how we can handle any situation in life. It begins with confession, 1 John 1, 9. As a result of confession, we're immediately filled with the Holy Spirit, who is our power source. There's two power sources in the spiritual life. 
The first is the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit. And second is the Word of God. And this comes down here under doctrinal orientation, problem-solving device number four. There's filling of the Holy Spirit and then faith rest drill, where we mix our faith with the promises of God. It is always the Word of God used under the filling of the Spirit of God that enable us to live the life that God has provided for us. What we've seen in our study of John on Sunday mornings is quality life. Faith rest drill is problem-solving device number three. Uh, Doctrinal orientation and grace orientation. Personal sense of our eternal destiny. We've studied the... the, I need to redo this. Um, In light of where we, we... What I've said the last few weeks, we have the love triplex, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind. Reverse these two. Occupation with Christ. That's the love triplex, and the result is the last, which is that inner happiness, that sense of tranquility and stability that comes only as a result of our, of our love for God and our occupation with Christ. So that brings us to a review of a doctrine that we haven't looked at for a while that is the background for these verses, and that is the doctrine of stress. Point number one, there are two kinds of pressures in life. Two kinds of pressures in life. Number one is overt pressure, which we will call adversity, outside pressure. These are those negative circumstances that affect our lives. The second kind of pressure in life are the inner pressures of the soul. The inner pressures of the soul, which I call stress. Adversity is the outside pressure of life. Stress is the inside pressure of the soul. That's point number two. Adversity is the outside pressure. Stress is the inside pressure. Point number three. Outside pressures of life can be represented in two categories of adversity. The law of volitional responsibility or divine discipline, which we might also call self-induced misery. It's a result of our own bad decisions. And suffering for blessing. This can be undeserved suffering, suffering from association, which, because we're in fellowship under the filling of the Holy Spirit, we can apply doctrine and advance. Point number four. Stress is what you do to yourself. Adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you. Stress is what you do to yourself. See, stress is the result of volition. Stress is how you respond to those tests. Here you have the test. You have the option. Positive volition, divine viewpoint using the stress busters. Negative volition, human viewpoint techniques to solve the problem. Now, what I mean by human viewpoint techniques, let's use an example here. Example, you come home and here's the test. The test is that you just got laid off. So you have a choice between human viewpoint options and divine viewpoint options. Human viewpoint options. As soon as you go negative, you're going to be under the control of the sin nature. So let's put the sin nature diagram up here on the board. We look at the sin nature. There we go. Look at the sin nature. Sin nature has two areas of operation. Area of strength produces human good, area of weakness, produces personal sins. So if we respond by we've lost a job, we're going to handle it in the area of weakness in terms of personal sins, so now we're going to worry about it. We're going to have fear and anxiety. We're going to seize up. That's, and, and we're just going to go home and, and, and collect. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to handle the situation? And we get consumed with fear and worry and anxiety and it just begins to eat away at our soul all of a sudden we say man I just can't do this I'm not in control of this situation I've got to do something you know if I had really been good if I'd been doing what God wanted me to do all along then uh, I wouldn't be in this problem so I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to name it and claim it right now by faith and I'm going to call this in the name of Jesus and I'm going to go down and I'm going to give an extra 50% of my pay and give that to the church so I'll impress God and I'll get my job back. And and, and we laugh. But I remember talking with a businessman in Houston, a very successful businessman who did this very thing and gave 50% of what he had in savings 
thinking that the problem was that he was holding on to his money, and that amounted to about six figures. And he was giving it away to impress God in order to get God's blessing back because he didn't want to go through the suffering he was going through. And it's just a complete distortion of the Word of God, but it's an operation of the sin nature. Now we're going to do good things and try to impress God. And then after a while, that doesn't work, so we get in this uh, uh, situation where we, we bounce back and forth between human good and personal sins, and eventually, we, as the sin nature controls, we either go one of two directions into asceticism and legalism. This is usually associated with human good. Or we go into antinomianism, which is lawlessness. That's what that means. It means you reject the absolutes of Scripture. You're just going to live life your own way and, and literally to hell with God. You go get into licentiousness and lasciviousness, and that leads to immoral degeneracy. Uh, asceticism and legalism leads eventually to moral degeneracy. Now, when this takes over in the soul, this is stress. And it just creates more and more trauma. That's the dynamics within the soul. And as time goes by, as month piles upon month and year upon year, it fragments the soul more and more and more. Now, you can always rebound. You can always turn around and you can always come back. Because God has paid for every single sin on the cross. That's not the issue. But what happens is the more, the longer you stay out of fellowship, without rebound and without recovery the harder it is to come back. It takes time. And the cumulative effects of all of that stress in the soul, is it takes a lot of time to recover. Stress is uh, what you do to yourself. Adversity is what the circumstances of life do to you. So that brings us to point five. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. This is an option. This is a result of negative volition. This is a choice. How you handle the heartaches and problems of life, the difficulties, the adversities, is always the result of your volition. You can choose to apply doctrine or choose to do it your own way. Adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Point number six, stress in the soul always results from sin nature control of your life and will destroy your spiritual life and any spiritual growth that you've ever accumulated. It causes Stress causes carnality, it causes backsliding, and it causes moral and immoral degeneracy, and it will completely destroy any capacity for life, love, and happiness. It eats away at your soul, destroying the inner spiritual strength that you've accumulated over time from any doctrine that you've learned. Point number seven... Stress, perpetuated in the soul, means failure to glorify God and therefore failure in your spiritual life. You will never achieve all that God has provided for you. All the blessings that God stored up for you in eternity past, contingent blessings in time and contingent blessings in eternity, all of those blessings will never be yours and you will lose them, not your salvation, but you will lose all the blessings that God would give you because of your failure to grow and mature. I used the illustration once before. When it comes time for Christmas, and most of you are parents, or you've been parents, or you want to be parents, or you were children, one or the other, I think that covered it all, you know that there are times when your children say, I want such and such for Christmas. And they're not ready yet. They either don't have the physical maturity or they don't have the emotional maturity to handle it. Because you are wise and you are smart beyond their years. You know the difference. And you know that you really want to give that to them, but not for another year or two. Because if you gave it to them now, it would spoil them. It would be bad for them. It would end up being destructive rather than constructive. So you have to wait. That's why God doesn't give us certain blessings. Not because we earn them, but because we have to grow to a certain level of spiritual maturity before we're ready for them. Once He gives them to us, they will be a great uh, motivation for us again. But God doesn't give them to us because of our obedience. We don't earn them. That's works. God, God intends all along to give them to us. But He's not going to destroy us by giving us blessings we haven't built the spiritual capacity to handle. And you see it time and time again in the lives of people. 
who just don't grow spiritually and they sacrifice incredible blessings that God has for them because they don't grow and mature spiritually and they spend all their time in divine discipline. So stress is optional, but adversity is inevitable. The only solution are the ten stress busters, either individually or cumulatively. Now, what types of adversity set up these tests for us to blame God for in verse 13? What types of adversity are there? Well, let's go through a list, and then we'll pick one or two to, to look at for examples. Well, first of all, there's social disaster, social adversity. This would be defined in terms of a loss of social life, loss of friends, broken romance, marital problems, uh, personality conflicts, injustice or injuries from others who we thought were our friends. Second category would be historical disaster. Historical disaster would include economic recessions, economic depressions which cause job loss, loss of income, loss of buying value of saved income, warfare being defeated or having the nation disarmed, diplomatic defeat, loss of establishment principles among the populace in a nation, loss of freedom, going through the violence of revolution, being the victim of terrorism or persecution. Uh, All of this would be under the category of historical disaster. Then you have criminal disaster, where you become the victim of a crime, thievery, rape, blackmail, embezzlement, child abuse, incest, or other crimes of that nature. Then there is vilification disaster. Vilification disaster, where you become the victim of gossip, slander, maligning, judging. Someone creates the public lie about you, and the consequence is a loss of reputation. You're the victim of gossip, slander, maligning, judging. This is vilification disaster. Then there's rejection disaster. This may be part of social disaster, where you are isolated socially, Maybe it's a business situation where you lose your job, you're treated unfairly, you're accused of certain uh, practices which are untrue, you're a victim of prejudice, maybe you're rejected by someone you love, you're the victim of poor management, Uh, you're passed over by promotion, you're fired or laid off because of uh, bad economics or bad decisions. That's just not because it's your fault, but you go through rejection. Then there are various weather disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, flooding, drought, ice storms, blizzards, all kinds of things can come along. One day you have everything. Think of some of the people we've seen in the news recently with the big hurricanes. One day they have homes and they have many nice things, and the next day it's covered with water with six feet of mud in the house, and their treasured possessions they've collected all their lives are gone, and no insurance, they've lost it all. Loss of health. One day you're healthy, the next day you get the word that you have cancer. You have a heart problem, whatever it may be. Loss of health involves disease, pain, terminal illness, starvation, and then uh, death or loss of loved ones. All of these are various disasters that we may encounter. So you have a test. There's a situation. You go through a problem. Let's say, talking about marriage, we've been talking about that the last several weeks. You have um, husband and wife. Take a common situation, happens with young couples, probably never happened with anyone here, so we won't be taking personal examples. But you have young couples. Now, they're trying to get started in life, and they get together, and they have that rosy glow after their honeymoon, but he still has to finish school. Listen, if you have kids, you ought to drill into them day in and day out. They don't get married until they graduate from college. They don't get married till they're today. They shouldn't ever even think about it until they're over 25 and somewhat established. So you have uh, uh, kids that get married young. They're still in school, and he still has to go through school. And he's he's not only going through school, but he's trying to work. So he's in school and spending uh, 20 hours or so a week in class. He's spending another 15 hours studying and another 15 or 20 hours working on top of that. And all of a sudden... She doesn't feel loved anymore. She's not the center of his world. 
So she starts feeling rejection. Now, she may in fact be rejected or she may just be hypersensitive. And sometimes it works the other way. They get married. uh, The wife goes goes to work and she's in an entry-level position. She's expected to work 60 hours a week. And she just doesn't have as much time to devote to him as when they were in school. And they were so madly in love with each other and they had lots of time. And so now he reacts. See, we live in an age today, I hear it all the time and heard for years. I, I, I have trouble doing a lot of marital counseling primarily because you only hear about 10% of the facts. And 80% of them, which, or 90% of them, which usually include the critical facts, are, are not in evidence, usually because one or the other of the people involved is in complete denial of their reality. So you never hear what you need to hear, and it's, it just becomes guesswork. The only clear counsel is what comes from the Word of God. So you get this couple, and they're going through either perceived or real rejection, and they begin to feel hurt. We live in an era of such hypersensitivity now. When people get, get, feel hurt and feel rejection over the, the least things. And even though they may be substantive, they're not, they're not always that critical. But it creates some sort of distance in the marriage, and they feel hurt, and they feel some sort of rejection, and they begin to back off. And then what happens? Then what happens is the marriage begins to get rockier and rockier as a consequence. One person pulls away, and the other person feels that, and they pull away. And before long, they're, they're, they're just two people living in the same house, breathing the same air. And then they feel bad. They feel rejected. They feel like they're not loved anymore. How did this ever happen? God, why did you do this to me? Why did you let me marry that person? And that's where we are in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, for he himself does not tempt evil. And the second half of the verse gets us into the principle of God's character, that God is perfect righteousness. He is absolute righteousness. We go back to the uh, integrity of God, plus R. God is absolute righteousness, which means He is absolute perfection. God is justice. He is absolutely fair and right in every decision that He makes. Furthermore, God is love. That means that He is motivated by giving us our highest and best, even though we may not perceive it to be so at the time. So God's love is what motivates him towards his, his children. And he is perfect righteousness and absolute justice. So God has, cannot be tempted by evil and he does not tempt anyone. God is not in the business of soliciting, being solicited by or soliciting evil. The test is designed to demonstrate the approval of our character. We saw that back in verse 3 where it says, knowing that the testing, dakimadzo, has to do with approval, the testing of our faith. God is not in the business of putting us in these situations to tear us down, but always in the business of putting us in situations to reveal the doctrine that's there or to get our focus back on Him so that we are motivated to learn doctrine and grow so that the character of Christ will be demonstrated in our lives. That's God's goal for your life, is to make you like Jesus Christ. Now, you may not want that, you may not like that, you may fight it and resist it day in and day out, but he's never going to stop until he takes you home to heaven. So we have one choice. We can either go with God's plan for our life, or we can fight it. And when we fight it, we just bring and pile on self-induced misery, the law of volitional responsibility, and divine discipline. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't blame God for your failures. Remember, adversity is inevitable because we live in a fallen world with fallen people. But stress is optional. The stress is our fault. It's the temptation when we yield to the temptation of the sin nature. And next week when we start in verse 14 and go down through 16, we will understand the pathology of the sin nature and how Temptation and lust give birth to sin and death. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word, to see how much you have provided for us. In your word you have told us that you have provided us 
with everything we need for life and godliness. There is life nowhere, nowhere else. When, the disciple, when everybody had deserted Jesus except for his disciples, Jesus turned to them and said, Why don't you leave like everybody else? Peter said, Lord, where else would we go? For you have words of life. And Father, that's why we're here, why we're here because we know that your word has for us the words of true life defined in absolutes that extend for eternity and through obedience to you, conformity to your word, it's the only way that we will have conformity to reality. And only in that will we have the, the quality of life, the happiness, the tranquility, the contentment that you have promised us. Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week, we can remember these principles. You will recall them to our mind. And we can apply them as we face the adversities of life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.